Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today we're joined by someone who's no stranger to the Jew 3 Project, um, someone that many of you um, know and love and have been deeply impacted by, Dr. Vince Bantu. Welcome, Dr. Bantu. Hey, hey, Lisa, great to be here. Great to have you on the podcast. For those who might not know who you are, just give them a little background about yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, like you said, no stranger here and uh, great to be here. And um, yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, again, my name is Vince Bantu and I'm in uh, Houston, Texas. And I, uh, I teach at Fuller Seminary uh, at our Houston campus and I teach black church studies as well as church history. Uh, and then I also uh, run the Meacham School of Hymenote, uh, and that's a, a, an uh, African American uh, theological seminary program. Uh, that's um, we, you know, we offer courses to uh, you know Black church leaders at affordable and and, and culturally contextual uh, way. And so, um, yeah, my uh, you know my my main kind of interests are uh, you know early Christianity and Africa and urban apologetics, and um, yeah, so I'm you know this the work of Jude three is very much uh, near and dear to my heart and uh, right in line with some of the things I feel the Lord's called me to do. Awesome. Well, thank you for being back with us. We're here to talk about your long awaited book. Long I'm excited that this resource is out because when we think of early African history, we think of Tom Oden's book, which is a great resource, uh, but Tom Oden is uh, a white male, uh, which is, I'm thankful that he wrote it, but I think it hits differently when it's coming from someone that's African-American. Kind of, what was your reason for writing this book? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, uh, yeah, I mean, um, uh, that, and I think I'm glad you mentioned, you know, because there's, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, it's Odin's book. He's actually written several books uh, and actually started a whole center uh, that's a great, you know, resource, the Center for Early African Christianity. Um that's been a real helpful, uh, you know, resource. And, um, and, uh, and I think, you know, it's, it, and then also there's Philip Jenkins book, the, uh, I think it's called the lost history of Christianity. And, uh, you know, I don't like that title because it ain't lost, you know, it's just, it's been suppressed, but <laughs> uh, definitely ain't lost, but, um, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a few books out there that have, you know, talked about it. Craig Keener, uh, Glenn Nursery's book, black man's religion. Um, but you know, one of the things 
that really, uh, you know, when you ask like what made me want to start the book, you know, I, I, I didn't mention before, you know, just a little bit my background, but my my uh, my doctorate is actually uh, in, you know, my I, I got my doctorate from Catholic University of America in D.C. and it was in the Department of Semitic and Egyptian languages. And so people hear that and they're like, oh, you're like a linguist or a philologist. And I'm like, well, sort of. But I mean, any historian works with languages. And so our department that we did uh, was specifically focusing on African and Asian Christian languages because there are whole languages uh, like Ethiopic or Ge'ez and Coptic and Syriac and uh, Armenian that, that, that are almost like uh, entirely devoted, the whole language is almost entirely devoted to the translation of the scriptures and to the proclamation of the gospel and to the, the writing and cultivation of Christian literature. Uh, and it's just unknown uh, to so many of us in the body of Christ all over the world. And, um, and that in and of itself is, I would argue, an extension of Eurocentricity and white supremacy that that we are only privy to uh, literature and and texts that are written in European languages. And so um, and so again, like you said, you know, I'm I'm so grateful for the, some of these books that are out there. Um, but I think one of the things that are that are that are missing in some of the books is that if you if we we look at them, there is a very disproportionate emphasis put in, uh, like, for example, Odin's book or in many of these different writings to uh, theologians that were from the continent of Africa, like Augustine or Athanasius or Origen or, or Cyprian or Tertullian, who wrote in Greek and Latin. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's great. We need to look at those, those authors. We need to talk about them uh, and, and we need to know about them. But again, uh, there were also many other theologians in Africa and in Asia as well, who also wrote in not only did they write in other languages, but they also uh, they also expressed a thought and a cultural mentality that was very different and distinct from kind of the dominant Roman imperial. And again, you have these different African theologians like Tertullian and Augustine and whatnot, who, uh, yes, they were African and they were from the continent of Africa, but they wrote and thought in a much more kind of Romanized way. Uh, and, and it was because of that that that's why their writings were embraced by, you know, and still have been embraced by Western Christianity for the last 2000 years. And so when he talks about how Africa influenced the Western Christian mind, well, that's exactly what it is. It's how how theologians who were on the continent of Africa influence the West. Um, but again, you know, the, the main reason they influenced the West was because they thought according to the Western culture. I mean, Augustine was largely influenced by, uh, you know, by Cicero, who was a, a pagan Roman philosopher uh, and also Ambrose of Milan, a Roman theologian from Italy. And so, again, a lot of their teaching and educational mentality, even though they were from Africa, was highly Romanized. And it was because of that that they were largely embraced by the Western Roman world. And again, that's not to say that we shouldn't read them or even celebrate them as African people. But I, I guess the the caution that I would say as we do that is uh, we have to be careful that we don't only uh, celebrate and highlight African people in as far as they have been influential and embraced by white people, <laughs> you know, or as or according to white uh, European standards. Right. Uh, and that we have to also celebrate uh, black Christianity and black progress in its own right. Uh, even if it's not necessarily embraced or or influential in white circles. And I think that that's a big reason why we've heard the names Augustine, Tertullian, uh, Athanasius, but we haven't even heard the names. Uh, we don't even know the names Shenouda or Benjamin of Alexandria or Zara Yacob or Georgius of Sagla, because these were African theologians who, number one, wrote in 
African languages, which at, especially at that time, and it's no, it's really the same today, even on the continent, uh, you know, European languages are more prized and African languages are seen as, you know, less than. And so these were theologians, the one, the names we don't know, these are theologians who wrote uh, in African languages and, and were consciously embracing languages that were seen as barbaric by the Roman Empire. But also number two, they were a part of ecclesiastical church denominations that were seen as heretical by the dominant Roman imperial church. And that's another reason why we don't know their names. And so, and those are exactly the names, the, the, the sub-Saharan African theologians, the darker skinned sub-Saharan African theologians who wrote in African languages and were not, were a part of indigenous African church structures that did not, you know, go with like Augustine did. They didn't go with the dominant Roman church. They had their own uh, church structure. And it's because of that, that we haven't heard of them. And they've been suppressed for most of Christian history. That that's really the reason why I said, you know what, uh, again, you know, uh, I think the books that are out there are great, um, but I think we really need a uh, another, you know, another work uh, that really helps introduce, uh, you know, a lot of, again, a lot of these other names and these sub-Saharan African theologians that we don't really know about or don't hear about as a as a companion, as an as a supplement to to what's out there. Yeah, that's extremely helpful and important that we note that um, if we are going to, I think, make any leeway. In, in combating this narrative, Christianity is the white man's religion, um, that we highlight those voices that have been marginalized. Um, I'm looking through uh, the book now, and I'm thinking about many people who don't know the first Christians of Africa. Now, if you've uh, if you've been listening to G3 for any amount of time, this is something that you probably are familiar with. But what do you think is unique about this chapter that we haven't probably already covered on the G3 project? Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I, say, I would say, uh, you know, probably, you know, kind of that's a great question. And it kind of flows with what some of we were just talking about, because, again, um, you know, I think that in our community, in the African-American community, when when we we talk about black folks today, when we talk about ancient African Christianity, again, the thing that we always go to first is Augustine and Tertullian and, and Athanasius and the, the names that we know of and that we've heard of because they have been embraced and they have been uh, stamped, right? These were the good Negroes. These were the ones that white folks accepted uh, as saints. And so we've heard their story. We've heard their history uh, because they've been embraced by Western Christian history. And so I, I would say that's that's maybe, you know, at least the first thing, now, you know, there's probably a lot of things we could talk about. But I think that, again, even, you know, as we in this in this chapter where it's talking about African Christianity, uh, I think something that might be new is some of the names that we haven't really known about or we didn't know about, um, it, you know, again, like names like Shenouda or like Benjamin uh, or like Zara Yacoub. Uh, or or Georgis of Sagla, like some of these names, uh, Walata Petros and Christos Samra, like some of these uh, these African theologians that we haven't heard of, uh, and and also um, to even to know, I would say, you know, again, so many things <laughs> I, I, I could talk about, but I, I would say maybe the the biggest thing uh, that that is so important, especially as you mentioned, uh, as 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 a, as an apologetically significant reason, right? Like as we're combating this idea in our community, Christians, white men's religion, I think one of the um, you know, one of the reasons why I'm trying I'm trying to draw our attention to uh, you know uh, not uh, again. Let's look at Athanasius and uh, and and or, and or and Augustine and all those Greek and Latin speaking African theologians. But it's actually more 
apologetically efficacious for us to focus on these Coptic speaking and these Ethiopian speaking and Nubian speaking theologians for people today who say Christianity is white man's religion. Because think about it, if we're if we're if we're only propping up uh you know very fair skin greek and latin hellenistically oriented theologians who were very agreeable and when we actually look at them people like augustine who actually harbored some like roman uh racist attitudes towards indigenous african uh, histories like a lot of these people in these these cultic communities in our community they don't even know that and so you know when, when they get wind of that it's it's important for us to be abreast of that and so when we uh when we look at though again uh, you know, like Coptic and Ethiopian Christian communities who, when we find out actually they were suppressed by the Roman church that at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 uh, and following even to this day that the Egyptian and Ethiopian churches, they had their own theology. They had their own uh, way of their own Christology, their own way of articulating the uh, the divine mystery of the incarnation that the Roman European church did not appreciate or did not approve of. And, and so there's uh, so again, there are Roman theologians, there's African theologians that the Roman and, and later subsequent European theologians and churches have kind of given their stamp approval of, right? The good Negroes. But there are still these uh, so-called bad Negroes, according to, you know, European standards, these these Egyptian and Ethiopian churches that to this day uh, have been cut off and have been seen as heretical. And, and even starting at 451, uh, were, were oppressed by the Roman church. Like, I don't know if a lot of us know that. And, and hopefully the, the chapter really introduces that, that, that from it, starting in the 400s uh, and then through the five and 600s, there was actually systematic co uh, colonial oppression going on where Roman Christians came into Africa and oppressed African Christians because they their theology was divergent and was different. Uh, and, and what it wasn't heretical, right? The Roman church was saying that Jesus is one person in two natures. Uh, but again, in, in the African and in the Asian context, that didn't really make sense to them. They, they felt like that what was being said was there are two different Jesuses. Now, that's not what the Roman church was saying, but that's how it was being uh, understood. So they said that Jesus is one person in one nature, but that that one nature is fully divine and fully human. And so even to this day, you can read church history textbooks written by white scholars who will tell you that the ancient churches of Egypt and Ethiopia and Nubia, that they did not believe in Jesus's full humanity. And nothing could be further from the truth because when you act, and again, those books written by modern European church scholars, they usually don't even know how to read. The, and that's why we have to go to the ancient texts, these Coptic and Ethiopian texts. They don't even, these, these historians are not even trained in these languages. So they are condemning uh, an entire trajectory, an entire half of church history to heresy without even having ever read these writings in their original language. And, and yet, but they are just simply imbibing the same critique that Roman theologians in the 400s were saying about African theologians and modern European scholars are just kind of taking ancient European scholars at their word without having go. But when you actually go read the writings of Severus of Antioch or, or Benjamin of Alexandria or, uh, or Timothy Elyris, you actually find out that, that nothing could be further from the truth. These ancient African theologians believed fully in the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus Christ. But they just had a problem with saying that, that there were two different natures. Because again, in their language, in their culture, that, that there wasn't a different, there, there wasn't like the same understanding uh, that there was in Greek about the difference, the rhetorical difference between person and nature. And so, uh, and so again, uh, the, you know, there was, there was really a cultural linguistic 
uh, misunderstanding. But with the church, the Roman church that had more power, they began to literally oppress African and, and, and Asian Christians, literally going into their churches. This is white Christians going in and oppressing black and brown Christians, literally removing their, their church leaders and replacing them with ones that agreed with the Roman theology and literally killing people and literally going into monasteries and churches and enslaving people. This was European Christians uh, hurting African Christians. And a lot of us don't even know that history, especially these people who say, so, you know, the people who say Christianity is a white man's religion, when, when we learn about this history, especially the history of the Council of Chalcedon and the schism that happened and the oppression that happened by European Christians to African Christians, it blows that out of the water and it makes it completely untenable to say that Christianity is a white man's religion and that white Christians enforce uh, Christianity on us. When we actually look at the fact that by the t that first of all, Christianity was there, uh, you know, already from the first century, from the time of the New Testament. But that's but but especially when we look at that fifth century schism that happened, then we actually find out that not only did Christianity not come from Europeans, not only was Christianity in Africa from day one, but that starting in the fifth century, white Christians were telling black Christians that they weren't Christian and that they weren't Christian enough because they weren't Christians the, the way they weren't Christians the way they were. And so they began to enforce that and they began to try to change them into being Christians like them. And the African Christians said, no, thank you. We actually have our own theology. We have our own church structure. We have our own worship style. And we and they were willing to go to death. They were willing to die and be persecuted by white Christians to hold on to their own indigenously African style of Christianity. That is impactful and I think helpful. When we think about um, what you're saying and the beliefs of these African fathers and mothers who were marginalized, what was their belief? Where, what, what, outside of the uh, God, uh, Jesus being fully God and fully man, what other things that we would call orthodox that they affirmed? Oh, they, I mean, they, they affirmed everything. In fact, you know, especially if you talk to, um, especially if you talk to like Egyptian and Ethiopian Christians today, they will tell you that not only did they affirm all of what we as Christians today would, would call orthodox, but they were the ones who originally were the ones articulating it. And they were the ones really defending it. Uh, you know, Athanasius, again, who was the Egyptian Pope and the Coptic speaking community, uh, you know, uh, in, in Egypt, like Pacomius and other, the other monastic communities throughout Egypt stood with him in orthodoxy. And he was actually oppressed because he held up and he was one of the, you know, his 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 uh, his his predecessor, Alexander of Alexandria, who was the Egyptian pope before him, was the one that argued against Arianism. And Arianism was the belief saying that Jesus was a, a lesser being, that he was created being. There was a time he didn't exist. But Alexander at the Council of Nicaea was one of the main people who was defending that belief. Now, here's the thing, you know, because these folks always want to say, oh, Council of Nicaea. Constantine and the Roman Empire invented Christianity. But again, another thing they don't know that we talk about in the book here uh, in that same chapter is that. Uh, that Constantine was very, um, you know, his, his, the nature of his faith was very dubious. And, and again, we have to look at the fact that after the Council of Nicaea, he flip-flopped and he began to persecute Nicene Christians like Athanasius, who took over as, as Bishop of Egypt, and he sent him into exile. And so again, how, how are they going to say that the doctrine of Jesus' divinity uh, and, and the ortho, and orthodox theology was an invention of Roman Empire when the Roman Empire, the, the same emperor that they claim is the one who invented the doctrine of divinity, was actually persecuting one of it, the African bishop who was actually one of its greatest uh, defenders and sent him into exile specifically for believing. And he began to support the Arians. Constantine began to support the Arians who said that Jesus was not God. 
So Constantine was actually going back and forth wishy-washy, and his son, Constantius, was even more so a supporter of, he was the Roman emperor during the 330s and 340s and mid-4th century, and he also was strongly an Arian. And Constantine was un, in exile because of him. And I mean, excuse me, Athanasius was actually in exile because of Constantius, the Roman Empire during the mid fourth century. And he wrote a whole treatise against, uh, you know, Constantius and critiquing him for his Arian belief. And and even so, at a time when the European Empire, the the Roman Empire, was under heretical leadership, was was actually trying to promote heresy, promote the idea that Jesus is not fully divine. It was African people like Athanasius uh, and, and Pacomius and many other uh, theologians in Africa who were actually defending the Orthodox belief. And this was actually also the same time that Ethiopia became a Christian nation. It was during all this stuff. During, you know, it was, you know, Athanasius was heavily involved with that. And because, you know, King Izana, you know, through a Syrian missionary, heard the gospel and embraced it and became a Christian. And we, we talk about that in the chapter as well. And, it, and then when Constantius, the Roman emperor, heard about that, he was attempting to bring Ethiopia uh, into the Aryan camp, into the, the camp that said Jesus isn't really God. And the Ethiopian Empire rejected that, and, and they actually aligned themselves with Egypt. And from that time going forward, there was a strong association between Egyptian and Ethiopian churches and Christians, and they were united against the Roman Empire, at, who at that time was under heretical Aryan leadership. So at a time when the Roman Empire was was promoting heresy, the idea that Jesus is God, African Christians were actually united in the belief that Jesus is fully God. And so that's just another example to show that. And, and again, you talk to these a lot of the, the descendants of these communities today, they'll be the ones to tell you that not only do we affirm all of what is orthodox, uh, that Jesus is fully God, believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, they believe in the full humanity and full divinity of Christ. Again, if you if you you know if you read uh, folks today, a, a modern church history textbook that don't even read these 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 sources in the in the first language in the original languages, uh, they'll tell you they don't really believe Jesus is, is really human. They thought he was just God. And again, nothing could be further from the truth. They believe fully in the in 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 the in the in the authority of Scripture, uh, in, in all of what we would affirm to be orthodox, and not only believe in it. And affirm it, but we're some of the earliest defenders of it. That is helpful to know. Um, when we think about um, this even further, and I forgot to um, define the terms for people who may be listening to this and may not even know what orthodoxy encompasses. When we say orthodoxy, what are we saying? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, um, and, and and that's another that's another great uh, opportunity, right, for uh, to to contextualize things. You know, we I mean, you know, here at the Meacham School of Hymenote, we use the the Ethiopian word for theology. Hymenote is the word for theology, and the Ethiopian theologians at during this ancient time period, they would often use the phrase uh, Hymenote Retet, and Hymenote Retet Retet the word Retet in, in is means orthodox, right? Because you know, again, people who say y'all white man's religion. When you're defending the idea of orthodoxy, then you're defending a Eurocentric concept, right? And not only do uh, cults say this, but even even many black theologians or so-called so-called you know theologians will say this kind of thing too. That I mean, many unfortunately, the majority of our people who are in the theological realm will say things like, you know, there is no such thing as right and wrong belief, right? They want to focus on justice and they want to focus on liberation for our people, which is good, and I, we affirm that, right? But they will say things like, well, the idea of a right belief belief or a wrong belief, which is, you know, orthodox or heterodox. That's what it means. It means like right belief, right, right doxology, you know, doxology that is orthos, that is straight, that is correct. 
uh, that they will say things like, well, that was invented by white folks. That was invented by Europeans. Right. And and for us, the real the real right belief is all about, you know, is your religion liberative? Right. Well, when we know actually the history of the black church is that it's both uh, that is right belief and right practice. And that's what our savior himself said, that love the Lord your God with all your heart, my soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the that is what right belief is, what orthodoxy is biblically. And that's what African theologians were defending. So it's inaccurate to say that the idea of orthodoxy, the idea that that there is a right way to believe, that there is a truth and that th that claims or beliefs that are contrary to the truth that Jesus has said, that he is the only way, truth and the life, that those things are heterodox, that those things are incorrect, right? We have many theologians in our community today who say that, that that's 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 not real, right? That that's a that's a white invention. That it was white folks who came wrong saying that there was right and wrong belief. But no, there were African theologians who were the who were the earliest ones defending orthodoxy, even way before the Council of Nicaea. Uh, that there were people who were arguing that Jesus was fully divine, and that any any teaching or belief contrary to the truth that Jesus is divine, uh, the you know the gospel message, the the core components of the gospel message or the bisrod as they called it in ethiopian language uh that these uh, that the fact that there is a god and that there's one god not many the fact that his name is jesus that he took on flesh that he was fully god and fully human and he and he died and rose again that this is this 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 bisrod message uh is the orthodox teaching and as african theologians encountered roman uh you know pagan religion and in traditional egyptian religion traditional ethiopian religion they argued uh persuasively for uh, right action, for sure, to be sure, and this is especially in the monastic communities, they were arguing for social justice and human flourishing for African people, but they were also arguing for retet, right? Retet is that Ethiopian word for orthodoxy. And so I, I like to use that word, you know, and hymenote retet, right, which means orthodox theology uh, as a way of, as an apologetic to show that we don't even always need to use Greco-Latin kind of terminology as we defend our Christian faith, because we have African ancestors who were doing it, but according to their language and according to their culture. And in, 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 in the case of Ethiopia, they defended Hymenote Retet. And again, if you read the writings of Georgius of Sagla, he was arguing uh, vehemently against traditional Ethiopian African religion. And he was arguing for Hymenote Retet, Orthodox theology, right? O Orthodox belief. And so that's what, that's what uh, that's what believers in all times and all places have argued for that that the the orthodoxy is uh, is is beliefs and practices that or that are oriented around the gospel, the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ, who is the only way, truth and life. And anything against that is not orthodoxy. It is heterodox. It is not retet. But again, I like to use the I think it's just a suggestion. I, I, I encourage many people, especially in our community, to embrace a lot of these African terms as a as a as an apologetic in and of themselves to show that uh, that that Africans in their own way and in their own language were also defending uh, the, the bisrot, the gospel message, uh, you know, according to theology or hymenote that is retet or correct. That's helpful because one of the things that we've talked about on here before is that um, oftentimes some people use um, inclusive views of faith as a means to liberate themselves from white theology when in fact the father of inclusivism is is white theology. So to escape, to try to escape one uh, reaching for another is, is problematic because um, even textual criticism is rooted in white German theology. Mm -hmm. So while Cohn built the framework, he built it on top of white liberal theology. Mm -hmm. Until you 
for me, my challenge is always until you can find me textual criticism produced from Africans, then the theology you're giving me is still white in a sense. It has white roots. Um, <laughs> but when we go back to what you're speaking of, that goes even further. So mm -hmm. if we're trying to find an Afrocentric theology, we probably want to go more that way than the other. Mm -hmm. um, those would be some of my thoughts. And we've already talked about this on um, the exclusive inclusivity. I mean, the um, exclusivity of Jesus conversation that you and I had on the podcast some time mm -hmm. ago. Um, so my challenge with it, if the argument for um, exclusivity is that it is white, my challenge is what is inclusivity? Um, mm. What is it rooted in? What is you're pulling from textual criticism? I haven't seen any black um, theology. I mean, any black textual critics. Um, so it, because of that, if if all of them are German, then your your framework is white. You're just building mm -hmm. on top of it. Um, so. If we're really trying to deconstruct and decolonize our theology, I think we have to wrestle with that as well. So those would just be some of my my thoughts. I think you can make other claims from the text, but saying it's white, I think is is going to have a problematic um, a, create problems for what you're trying to articulate. If that's the the pushback you want to give, mm -hmm. um, we'll let that alone for now. Um, but um, when we think more about um, the early church in the Middle East, what do you think most people miss? Because that's something you focus on in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's another thing. I mean, it, it, you know, it makes all the sense in the world, right? That that there would be a, a rich and vibrant Middle Eastern and Asian uh, church history given the fact that Jesus was Middle Eastern and he lived in the Middle East and, and all the disciples and all the early Christians were Middle Eastern people, uh, you know, living in, in the Levants. Right. Uh, and so, um, but again, I would say that there's a, it's interesting that there is a very interconnected history uh, between the Christian, the earliest Christians of Africa and the earliest Christians of the Middle East, because the majority, not all, but, the, but many of the Christians uh, churches of the Middle East, especially many of the denominations that are still around today that came up in, you know, Armenia and Syria and Arabia uh, in modern day Iraq, you know, many of those Christians were of a similar faith and confession that rooted themselves also to this schism. So what the stuff I was talking about in, um, uh, you know, in, in in with regard to early uh, Christianity in Africa and the way in which that early African Christians were actually oppressed by European Christians. Also, early Middle Eastern Christians were oppressed, and and, it, and it's rooted in the same issue, that same uh, Chalcedonian schism. So, if any, if anything, if there's one thing, uh, as we're talking about the book, and as we're talking about kind of takeaways and things, if there's one thing that maybe uh, that that I think that some of the other existing literature really misses uh, is the fact that. The Council of Chalcedon needs to become, uh, you know, a much more studied and known and talked about event in our circles and in our, especially as Black people, but even other, you know, minorities as well. Because again, that that council was very detrimental and very uh, uh, consequential for the for the for the Christian faith for the for Christian history. Because again, that was a a major schism that was totally unnecessary. That you know, and honestly, I'm, this is not just my opinion. Like, I mean, literally, the Roman Catholic Pope and the Syrian Orthodox Pope 
you know, just a few years ago, actually signed a joint statement saying the same thing I'm saying, saying basically like, yeah, we, you know, we really just weren't understanding each other. And we're all Christians here. And, you know, we just weren't understanding each other's languages and, and culture. So even the leaders of these communities have said that today. It's not just my opinion. Um, but, you know, it, you know, it's so it, it's still the ramifications have have been so detrimental because, again, the gospel, the bisrot was spreading in every direction across Africa and across Asia. And and uh, the church and many of the churches, especially in the Syriac speaking culture, you know, Sy- Syriac was a language that that was from modern day Syria and, and part of Turkey. But it, 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 the Christians that spoke Syriac because it was a dialect of Aramaic, this, the language of Jesus and uh, and, and that pe- Christians who spoke that language, they ended up going all over the Asian continent. I mean, literally not only throughout the Middle East, but all along the Silk Road, as far as China and, and all the way down into India, uh, as far as Sri Lanka. I mean, literally, the gospel was spreading all over the Asian continent and primarily through Syriac speaking people from the Middle East who were carrying the gospel. So, again, <laughs> any claim that Christianity is white men's religion is also counterable uh, when you look at Asian Christianity, because the Christianity first came to Asia from Middle Eastern Christians who spoke Syriac, who ain't have, you know, nothing to do with the Roman, Greco-Roman Constantinian Empire. But it, again, it came in way before, again, at the first century. And, and and I mean, for example, the, the Syriac Bible came straight from Hebrew, straight into Syriac. It didn't even go through uh, the Greek Septuagint. And so that's just a, a visual example about how the way, the way in which the gospel came straight from, you know, Hebrew, uh, Middle Eastern, is Israelite people uh, in the Levant, the apostles, and it went straight into their Syriac speaking neighbors in Asia without any Western or European or Roman intermediary. But it went straight, and then from there, it went straight into Persia and then into Central Asia and into China, again, with no European intervention. Uh, in the whole thing. And so that's a you know, that's another, uh, you know, I think, powerful history that we need to talk more about. But again, also, uh, it, that was also frustrated and interrupted by the Council of Chalcedon, which in the fourth in the in 451, the Roman church was saying, again, Jesus is one person in two natures. And just like in Africa, many of the Middle Eastern Christians in Armenia, in Syria and Arabia, they weren't going for that. They were saying, no, Jesus is one person in one nature. But again, that when when they when they did not want to say two natures, that did not mean that they believed that Jesus was only divine and not human. They believed fully. Again, if you read Severus of Antioch, Jacob of Sarug, Philoxenus of Mabug, uh, Ephraim the Syrian. These are well, Ephraim the Syrian a little bit beforehand. I want, I want to mention him in a minute too. But but any of the other names like Philoxenus, Jacob, uh, you know, and, uh, and Severus. These are all Syriac theologians who believed strongly, argued firmly for the full humanity and full divinity of Christ. But they did didn't want to say that those two things were in two different natures because again, in the language, it, it didn't have the same effect and meaning as it would as as it did in Greek. Whereas in Greek, you could have that kind of distinction between person and nature. And so they uh, they they didn't accept the 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 Council of Chalcedon, and because of that, the Roman Church also strongly persecuted them as well. Same, just like in Africa, we're going into their churches and removing their leaders. Severus of Antioch, who I mentioned, who was one of the biggest uh, Syrian theologians in the 500s, who argued against the Roman Church, they sent him into exile, and he wrote a lot of his. Um, literature against Chalcedon in exile while he was in Africa and Egypt. And he also wrote about how the Africans and the Middle Eastern people, he was living, he was, he was from Syria, but he lived in uh, Egypt in exile because of the Roman emperor. And he was actually writing about how the Egyptians and the Syrians were all together in one faith. And, and, and they were both united against the Romans. So there was not only an African alliance, but there was an African and a Middle Eastern alliance against the Roman church. And so that's another thing that, again, that this, that's why I'm saying this Council of Chalcedon thing is 
is massive and huge. And so uh, just like in the Middle East, there was a Christian tradition in church history that was that believed in one nature. They called themselves Miaphysite, means one nature. And they and and they uh, and for them, that was what was orthodox. That was what was, uh, you know, what was, um, you know, the correct way of thinking. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that was, that's a part of, uh, that, that goes back to the beginning of the church in, uh, in the Middle East. And, uh, and I think that's another thing, another, another thing that I'd want to point out about the Middle Eastern things I mentioned Ephraim the Syrian, uh, he was, a he, he lived before a lot of this controversy and he wrote, he was one of the first authors to really write in the Syriac language. And he wrote poetry that is, that is absolutely beautiful. And I would recommend anybody who wants to read more again, uh, to be a little bit more inclusive, to be a little bit more uh, diverse in how we read early theologians. I would just, first of all, I would appeal to people, please read more than, uh, yes, read uh, Athanasius, read Augustine, read Tertullian, but please also read theologians who wrote in other languages, uh, who wrote in African and Asian languages. And and when, when we're talking about Middle Eastern, the, the number one uh, uh, person I would recommend is Ephraim the Syrian. Ephraim the Syrian wrote theology and he defended orthodoxy. He wrote against heretical groups in the Middle East, in his Middle Eastern context, in the Syriac language, but he also did it in a way that was unique to his cultural context. He wrote a style of poetry, uh, and I you know, I'll go over this in the chapter on Middle East, where uh, called Madroshe. And Madroshe are, uh, you know, they're often translated as hymns, but I, I prefer to just call them Madroshe because really the word hymn doesn't do justice to the fullness of what this uh, this artistic style was. But it was actually in the Middle East. It was a, a style of poetry that went to music. It was almost like a spirit. It was like gospel. It was a spiritual where, you know, the the, the leader would chant out uh, poetic phrases in certain syllable patterns. And then there would be a chorus that would chanted the, the chorus. And it was a communal musical thing that actually started started in, uh, in pagan worship. And Ephraim actually took that cultural style in his context and reappropriated it for the gospel and used that poetic, communal, interactive, musical, spiritual type of poetry to, or to, to communicate orthodoxy. And so, but again, uh, interestingly, throughout a lot of uh, Western scholarship, you will find overtly racist things said about Ephraim and Syriac poetry and theology, calling it unintellectual, calling it uh, unsophisticated, calling it not as theologically robust as, you know, the Greek uh, counterparts during Ephraim's fourth century context, like, you know, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus or John Chrysostom or, or, you know, any of the Greek or Augustine, any of the Greek or Latin speaking theologians. It's, it's crazy how blatant the racism is in a lot of modern European scholarship. But we, you know, we see the same thing in our community today. I mean, how many of us black Christians today have been told that black preaching is, uh, you know, less theologically robust and less theologically profound than white preaching or that gospel music is low liter. I, you know, I can't stand when people say like high worship, low worship, that somehow a gospel song that don't, that has like, you know, uh, repeated lyrics in it is less theologically profound than a hymn that has like a thousand words in it that you need like a book to read the whole thing. And again, I'm not hating. I mean, there's, you know, all these things are good, but we still deal with this now that we, that one style of worship, one style of tradition is seen as, you know, more uh, superior to another just because it comes from white folks. But again, Ephraim the Syrian is a great example because when you read that man's poetry, it's it's intellectually mind-boggling. And there's some great studies out on his poetry. And even the fact that he 
communicated theology and orthodoxy through poetry shows that he was strongly arguing for that, like you were saying, or the idea of orthodoxy, the idea of right, wrong belief, the idea of there, there is an exclusive truth that does not come from white folks. So there were African and there were Asian and Middle Eastern theologians like Ephraim who argued for orthodoxy from his own cultural vantage point, but he did it according to his own cultural and, and artistic means that was dissed and dismissed by Western European counterparts in his time and to this very day. But when you, again, when we, we got to get hip on Ephraim's uh, theological poetry, his madroche, uh, because they are an, a uniquely and indigenously Middle Eastern way of Christian worship and expressing Christian theology and orthodoxy. Definitely. That is is very, very helpful. When we think about um, just thinking about how you concluded um, this thing before that, I just um, I think you've mentioned it so much. I think we would do our audience a disservice if we didn't tell them what it was. People are familiar with what happened at the Council of Nicaea. But if you would have to have to give a short one about the other council you you mentioned um just give a short synopsis of the mm -hmm. council um yeah no uh, i thank you for asking that because again we 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 have got to talk about the council of chalcedon that 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 i mean yeah the council of nicaea is important as well you know uh you know is considered first of all you know, first of all, this is a side note, but, you know, this is the thing for me as a historian and especially as a black historian is that we have to start to decolonize the way we do history. You know, a lot of times, a lot of times church history textbooks will tell you Council of Nicaea was the first council and we'll say it's the first council. It's not the first council. It's the first Roman council. Right. And the, actually the Persian Empire, there were Christians in the Persian Empire. Uh, you know, at the same amount of time as there was in the Roman Empire. And they actually had councils before the Council of Nicaea. They actually had a council even years before the, the Council of Nicaea. So the Council of Nicaea was the first Roman council. But there were churches in Persia who were not even in the Roman Empire. They were having their own councils, again, making it untenable to say it's a white man's religion because it was there was already Christians in Persia. They were doing their own thing, having their own councils. There was Christians in India having their own councils. There was, you know, Christians in Arabia having their own councils, they, you know, and, and so you know, but the Council of Nicaea, the councils we often, I mean, for example, there's there's the Council of Seleucia in 315. There's the Council of Mar Dardisho. There's, uh, I mean, there's so many other councils that that we need to have another podcast to talk about that because there's all these other councils that have nothing to do with European church history that we need to talk about. But if we're talking, we're talking about Roman church history, we're talking about European church history, then the Council of Nicaea is considered to be the first ecumenical council, but there were other ones as well. Now, the Council of Chalcedon was the, considered the fourth ecumenical council, but I would always, I always want to add it's the fourth Roman uh, ecumenical council. It's the fourth European council. There was Nicaea in 325, there was Constantinople in 381, and then there was Ephesus in 431, and then Chalcedon happened in 451. Now, uh, again, all this is Roman, right? We're, we're, just please remember that. We're talking about Roman European church history, and there are other conversations that we could and, and need to have about what was going on in other parts of the world. But in the Roman Empire, Roman Christians were not really clear on how to talk about God and talk about the God. And that's another important point in and of itself is the fact that it was only in the Roman Empire that that Christians uh, were wondering whether or not Jesus was God or wondering whether or not Jesus is fully God and fully human and how to talk about that. Christians in these other areas that I'm talking about, they weren't even struggling with that. They were clear on that. They had other questions and other issues. But in the Roman Empire, first, the question was, is Jesus God? And the Council of Nicaea affirmed what had already been argued for hundreds of years that, yes, Jesus is 
fully God. And they had to say it in a council because it was the first time that anybody had ever stood up to say the opposite, that he wasn't God, which was Arius. But there were many other Roman Christians, Irenaeus of Lyon and uh, Tertullian and Justin Martyr, who had already said hundreds of years before that, that Jesus was God. And then in 381, again, because like I mentioned, 325 was not the end of the story in the Roman Empire because Constantine, Constantius were trying to revert it back to Arianism and say Jesus wasn't God. Julian, who was emperor in the 360s, he was trying to bring the Roman Empire back to pagan religion. And so there was a time when Rome was trying to go, come back to pagan religion and persecute Christians again. So the situation in the 300s was very tenuous. But in 381, that was when uh, under Theodosius, it became more firm and continuous that Christian. Uh, Roman Empire was Christian, and they just reaffirmed what was said in 325, that Jesus is God, and also they put more emphasis on the Holy Spirit, because in the Nicene Creed, it just said, we believe in the Holle Spirit, but in Constantinople in 381, the second Roman council, they added, you know, more about the Holy Spirit. Now, in 431, in Ephesus, the Council of Ephesus, uh, that was when there was a question about Mary's role in the whole thing, because in the 400s in Rome, they started having questions about, OK, well, if, if Jesus is God, then how is he also human? How do we understand that? And so in 431, there was a question about Mary's role in the whole thing. And like, it, did Mary give birth to God or did Mary give birth to the incarnate Christ? And uh, Cyril of Alexandria you know, argued that that Mary gave birth to God, that she is the Theotokos, she is the bearer of God. And this Nestorius of Constantinople was condemned as a heretic for saying, no, she wasn't the bearer of God, she was the bearer of Christ. And so that 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 council was the third Roman council, but that also shows how they were beginning to talk about Jesus's humanity, divinity, and how they go together. Now in 451, the Council of Chalcedon, that was when the issue came to a head and, and they wanted to specifically talk about Jesus's humanity and, and divinity and how those things work together and how we talk about that. Well, there, 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 you know, there were there were Christians in Egypt who were starting to say that Jesus has one nature, that his humanity and divinity are in one nature. And so they had a council in 449. They, again, they had their own council uh, in Egypt that said that Jesus has one nature. Well, the Roman church heard about this and they had a, so the council of Chalcedon in 451, it actually wasn't, it was a reactionary council to the council that Egypt had in 449. And, and they wanted, the, the Roman church wanted to say, okay, well, the Egyptians are saying that Jesus has one nature and we don't like that. And so Leo, the Bishop of Rome, uh, you know, he wrote a tome where he talked about Jesus has one, he's one person, uh, one hypostasis, but he's two natures. He has two physics. And that tome that Leo wrote, the Bishop of Rome wrote, that at the Council of Chalcedon, at the Roman Council of Chalcedon, that became seen as orthodox. And the, at Chalcedon, just like uh, in 449, the Egyptians had their own council that condemned the Romans. Well, the Romans had their own council in 451 at Chalcedon, and that rejected the Egyptians and said the Egyptians are heretical who are saying that Jesus is only one nature. And, and that, was, that, that was the moment that the Council of Chalcedon was the moment that there was a major split between the, the dominant church of the Roman Empire and the churches that were in Egypt. Because also at that time, Nubia and Ethiopia had already been a Christian nation for over 100 years. And Nubia was also uh, becoming a Christian nation right around that time. And there was Christians in, uh, coming around in Nubia as well. And so the churches of Africa were all united with Egypt in rejecting the Roman council. And then, a little, and then also... As I mentioned, many of the Syrian theologians were also uh, against this Roman decision, this this Council of Chalcedon and Leo's tome. And they also were saying that, no, Jesus is one person in one nature. And so, the, again, the, the Council of Chalcedon represents the first major cultural schism in the church. The, the Christianity has been a, a, a religion for all people from the very beginning. And the gospel, the Bisrat, was spreading in every direction. It was going across Asia, across Africa, and across Europe. But 
at the Council of Chalcedon, the reason that's so important is because that represents the first time that European Christians said, no, the way we talk about Jesus and the way we do theology is the only right way. And you have to say that Jesus is one hypothesis in two physics, even if that don't make no sense in your language, even if in your language, for example, you don't even have two different words for hypothesis and physics. And what that means in your language is not the same. Right. But again, all these Christians were in in Middle East, in Africa and in Europe. They all believed that Jesus was fully God and fully human and that he's the only way, truth and the life. But they, they had different ways of talking about that, uh, his humanity and his divinity. The Romans were saying he's one person in two natures. The Middle East and African folks were saying, no, he's one person in one nature, but that that one nature is fully God and fully human. He is fully God and he's fully human. And so that that that's why uh, it is so important for us to really understand this history, because, like I mentioned, not only did the Roman church uh, excommunicate many of the African and Middle Eastern Christians and call them heretics unjustly, but they began to go in and persecute them. The, they, this was Christian on Christian violence. This was European Christians uh, persecuting Middle Eastern and African Christians. And, and when they did that, for 200 years, right, for, from 451 to 640, they were doing this for 200 years, were persecuting uh, Christians in the Middle East and Africa. That severely limited their ability to continue to spread the gospel across Africa and across Asia. And so, uh, and so European Christians thwarted the missionary efforts and the mis- ministerial efforts of African and Middle Eastern Christians. And then what happened in 600 years, uh, in the in the year 600? That's when Islam came around. Islam comes out of nowhere and conquers the Persian Empire and much of the Roman Empire. And the Romans had already been persecuting African and Asian uh, Christians for 200 years. So when the Muslims came up and took over those parts of the world, the Romans just retreated and said, fine, you can have them because we don't like them anyway. We've been persecuting them for 200 years anyway. They don't listen anyway. And so then already persecuted Christians in Africa and in the Middle East now came under Islamic control. And that also eventually hindered their ability to continue to spread the gospel. So what does this mean? What this means is that the gospel was on its way to our ancestry, to our ancestors in West Africa and in Central Africa, just like it was on its way all across the Asian continent into the Pacific Islands, uh, on its way into the Americas to indigenous people. The gospel was spreading as God intended it to be. And what got in the way of that? White supremacy. What got in the way of that? One dominant church standing up saying, unless you're a Christian exactly the way we are, you're not a real Christian and we're going to persecute you. And and unfortunately, the gospel ended up arriving to the shores of West Africa or to the Americas, to indigenous people through slave and colonial ships. Not the way God had intended it, because the gospel was spreading already from Africans to other Africans and from Asians to other Asians. And that was already happening. So, the again, the Council of Chalcedon is uh, is a uh, in 451 is a uh, I'm sorry, you said make it a quick one, but I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a detrimental time period and such a thing to lament and understand. Uh, but it's also helpful to understand as we combat this idea, because now through God's providence, even though the gospel came to many of us uh, through slavery and colonialism, now through God's providence, we have the ability to reconnect. And that's what this book is all about. Now we can, and, and not just this book, but we have the ability through so many other means to reconnect 
uh, mentioned we're going to do a trip to Ethiopia. And 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 there's so many other ways that now uh, Christians of color who, even though we received the gospel through colonialism, through slavery, now we are disentangling ourselves from that Eurocentric the, uh, theological paradigm. We're decolonizing our theology. And as we do that, as we disentangle the true bisrot, the true gospel of Jesus Christ from the, uh, you know, from the white supremacist version that it was first introduced to many of our ancestors. Uh, my suggestion is as we do that, let's also look at uh, non-Western, at African and Asian Christians who didn't have to disentangle it, who didn't have to decolonize their theology. Their theology wasn't decolonial. It was our colonial. It, 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 there was no, it, it was, it was embraced and it's been independent, uh, you know, from day one. And they've been actually, and, and not only that, but they've actually been resisting white hegemonic, white supremacist, Eurocentric theology since 451. Let's look at those people and, you know, and let's learn from them. Let's, let's connect to that. Let's, let's emulate that same kind of theological discourse. Um, and, and also it, it's helpful and apologetically, as I mentioned, be, for the Council of Chalcedon also, be, it, because it shows that um, that the gospel has survived and thrived among African and Asian people, even in spite of European attempts at, 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 at uh, imposing one particular style of Christianity. Uh, and that makes, again, the claim that it came from white folks untenable, that not that nothing could be further from the truth, that that African and Asian Christians in these contexts survived even despite European Christian oppression. That's extremely, extremely helpful, I think, to our listeners. Um, you conclude with this, and I, I thought this was very powerful line just to begin the conclusion with, is following Jesus the way he made us. Mm -hmm. Following Jesus the way he made us. I thought that was so, so powerful. Explain why you decided to go with that concluding thought. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I appreciate that because again, that 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 just segues into where I was just going, and and uh, you know, again, like to me, the reason this history is so important, the reason why it's so interesting, is because again, I you know, I as a as a uh, you know, just to share a little bit of my testimony, you know, I grew up in one of the first hip hop generations uh, in an urban context uh, in you know, west side of St. Louis. And I always grew up thinking that my urban hip hop culture was wrong and was evil and, and just everything about it was evil. And to be sure, there's a lot of things about it that God needs to transform. But I always grew up thinking it was all evil. And I mean, I grew up in the days where, you know, they uh, there was even black churches who were, you know, even burning hip hop CDs saying this stuff is evil and it's from the devil. And and so I, you know, uh, and I remember and shout out to like Reach Records and Cross Movement and some of those early movement. They really discipled me from a distance because I, you know, I never had a context for people wearing backwards hat and do uh, and 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 being Christians following Jesus and I just never I never thought that was possible I thought you had to to follow Jesus you had to just totally reject everything about who you are and and I really uh you know that really ministered to me uh, another group that really ministered to me uh, and still do is is Native American Christian theologians who also have been told that their language their culture is just wrong and demonic and they were told that by white Christians who put put them in reservations and put them in mission boarding schools and told them everything about their culture is demonic and 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 many of them are also also, you know, shout out to, to North American Institute of Indigenous Theological Studies, like people, groups like that uh, also discipled me and, under, and helped me understand that, like, God came so that you could be the fullest of who you are. God didn't come to make you less black. 
God didn't come to make you less Native American. He didn't come to make you less Chinese or French or whatever you are. He came to make you more of that. He came to complete that, right? Paul said a Jew is not a Jew only one outwardly, but but inwardly. Paul was saying basically that I'm a real Jew. I'm a true Jew because I'm, I'm, I've been grafted in through faith in Christ. And so it's the same for all of us because, again, uh, you know, we're not all supposed to be Jewish. We ain't all supposed to be Hebrew, but God makes us all diverse on purpose. And, and, uh, and again, you know, P he told Peter, he had to tell Peter that first in Acts 10 uh, when he said, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, no, I don't touch anything unclean. And God said, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And we know that P uh, God was setting Peter up to meet Cornelius and understand and realize that the gospel had, had been revealed to Gentiles. And we see in Acts 15 that not only are Gentiles included in the gospel, but also as they are, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jewish. They can stay Gentile. They can stay Greek or, or, or Spanish or North African or Egyptian or Persian or whoever they are, whatever they do. They, that, 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 that the gospel both embraces our culture and it transforms it where our cultures are sinful. It transforms it, but it also embraces it because all theology is cultural. All worship is cultural. All, all of what we do as Christians in response to God's revelation is cultural. God's revelation is universal. It's transcendent. The gospel is transcendent. It's universal. But theology and worship and what we do as, as Christians in response to God's revelation is cultural. And so all theology is cultural. And so we, we can't just embrace some other group's theology, some you know dominant group's theology. And that dominant group also needs to realize that their theology is not uh, a cultural, but it's also culturally relevant. And, and it's and, and you know, it's not just the truth. It's not just the gospel. But everything, every every theology, every theological articulation, every creed, every council is culturally specific. It's not just the truth. And so we need to realize that and, and understand that all of our theologies are, are situated in our particular context. And we are all reflecting on the same universal word of God, the truth and the, the gospel message. And so we, we are doing a disservice to God. I was doing a disservice to God uh, when I was younger and I thought, oh, I need to throw away my culture. And that's what God reached out to me and spoke to me the same words that he said to Peter uh, is that, uh, he, he told me, Vince, in reference to my urban hip hop culture, do not call it unclean because I've made it clean. And that's the same for every culture, every people group that we have to follow uh, the Lord as he made us. That to deny who we are, to deny our culture and say it's all evil, it's all wrong. It's all for us as black people to deny our African ancestry, to deny our uh, black skin and, and, and many of the ways in which we are uh, connected in our African ancestry. Uh, you know, we you know, uh, there's ways in which we need to, again, in the parameters of the Bible. Bible and in the gospel, we need to connect to a lot of our African ancestry. And, and, you know, that's why, you know, like I said, a lot of times I use African terminology and uh, African concepts and people will say, oh, you can't do that. That's syncretism. That's this and that. Okay. Well, what do we think we're doing every time we say Thursday, Thor's day, or we say the word God, which actually comes from Wudan or Odin from Nordic mythology, or we say Easter, which was a pagan goddess, right? We, we, we have Christmas trees and Christmas wreaths that come from European pagan uh, culture. We'll connect with European paganism. We'll embrace European pagan Paganism, but we won't even connect to our African ancestry, right? Uh, in the context, of course, again, as I said, in the context of biblical truth and and in the truth and the truth of the gospel. Again, the gospel has to transform a lot of our culture, but also embraces it as well. And so, how how do we? How can we more deeply connect with our African ancestry and embrace our African American unique culture? And uh, in, in, uh, in all of its diversity, hip hop and all of this different cultural diversity, and for all of us, right? Because again, when we when we deny who God made us to be, we are calling what He's called clean, unclean. And and again, the uh, the purpose in embracing who we are, the purpose in embracing all of who we are, and celebrating it, uh, and and again, becoming truly black. 
that becoming a Christian and maturing in Christ and being discipled doesn't mean that we become less black. Again, when John looked up in heaven, he saw every tribe, nation, tongue. We're still going to be black in heaven, and there's going to be hip-hop in heaven. There's going to be breakdancing in heaven. There's going to be every kind of worship and dance and, and, and culture because God chooses to be glorified in diversity. He made us male and female in God's image. God himself is in diversity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in unity. You can't have unity without diversity. He created us in different cultures and he in different races, different colors, and he told us to spread out, fill the earth, and cultivate it. That's what the Reformed brothers and sisters called the cultural mandate. He intended for cultural human diversity. It wasn't an accident, and it wasn't a, you know, a surprise, and it's not an earthly temporary situation. We're not going to be floating clouds in heaven. We're still going to be black and white and native and Asian and Hispanic and Arab, and all these languages and cultures are part of God's uh, imprint on us in, as his image bearers that we are all are called to create language and culture as he created us. We are lowercase c creators as he is the capital C creator. And so culture is a part of our identity. But when we all are doing one thing, when we're all, you know, kind of like, you know, people like to say it's a salad bowl, like have all these different ingredients. But but what happens is we pour ranch dressing all over the whole salad bowl and everything, all those different ingredients all taste like ranch. Right. We we now I'm not saying we shouldn't read and experience different cultures. I'm not trying to say white theology or white Christianity is bad. We shouldn't read it. Not at all. But what I'm saying is that it has gotten way too much play in, in 2000 years of Christian history, way too much play. And there's indigenous African Asian theological, uh, you know, stories and trajectories that we have not talked about that we need to reconnect to. And we need to continue to develop new voices that are unique to our people that are grounded in the truth of scripture and in the gospel, but also that fully embrace who we are as and follow Jesus as he's made us. That is extremely, extremely helpful um, to, to us and to our listeners. How can people get the book? Yeah, so so uh, you know this this uh, multitude of all peoples uh, is published with University Press uh, Academic, and so you can get it uh, on the um, on the web page uh, on you know on the publisher's page in University. It's available on Amazon, and uh, and uh, yeah, you can so definitely definitely uh, feel free to 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 cop a copy. Yes, and I highly recommend this resource. Um, if you if you were like I'm trying to keep up with what he was saying, but I he was going too fast for me. Get this book and go through it. And if you want to start, um, we we um, heavily pull from our conversations with Vince um, to think through how we did um, the curriculum. So if you need an intro, um, you can get the Through Eyes of Color and that little small chapter on early African Christianity as a as a little intro, and then dive into the heavy stuff. So, uh, but definitely if you already, most of our listeners already got the, the intro piece because we've done tons of episodes on this. So this, I think, is a helpful resource that will live on for years and years that people can look to, to navigate, to reconnect to their history, um, to understand like that I can see myself in this faith. And so thank you for writing this. I know you put a lot of effort, years of work, uh, years of study so we appreciate your your diligence in studying to produce this how can people get in contact with you on social media and your school's website oh yeah yeah um well definitely uh feel free to hit me up uh you know vince Bantu, uh, on facebook and uh you'll you'll see me there standing in in front of an ethiopian church uh trying to practice what i'm preaching <laughs> reconnecting to that history um and and, and in lieu of that actually um 
you know, definitely also hit me up uh, on the uh, Meacham website, uh, www.meacham.org, M-E-A-C-H-U-M.org. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, hit, hit us up. You know, uh, we got events coming up on that website. We have a, a theology conference that's happening uh, in Chicago uh, that's going to be held at uh, Urban Ministries International. And uh, we were talking earlier about, you know, just how to how to recenter black theology uh, in a way that is truly black and also is biblical. So that's what that's all about. So uh, definitely, if, you know, uh, uh, feel free to come hit that up as well. Uh, also, we're going to be sponsoring a trip to Ethiopia uh, in uh, January during the Ethiopian festival of Timket. That's another example right there, right? In Ethiopia, it's not Christmas. That's the biggest holiday. They celebrate Christmas, but it's not Christmas. That's the biggest holiday. The biggest holiday is the celebration of Jesus's baptism, uh, what they call Timket, which means baptism in Ethiopian language. And man, they go crazy. It's like party festivals and worship and bright colors everywhere. And we're going to be seeing these ancient churches and ancient places that we talk about in the book, uh, in, in live and in color and in, in living color. So definitely hit that up in January of 2021. Uh, but you know, you can sign up for that as well on the Meacham website. Uh, and if anyone's interested in taking classes, they're available fully online. You can take them right, uh, right from the comfort of your home, uh, completely online. And they are, uh, these classes are do offer a pathway to accredited masters and MDiv degrees as well. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, definitely uh, hit me up on the Meacham website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Vince. This has been a rich conversation. Uh, we appreciate you coming back on the podcast and definitely y'all check out his website and get that book ASAP. It's very, very important. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast here at the Jew3 Project. We're helping you to know what you believe and why. Remember, you can get our new curriculum through Eyes of Color um, at Jew3project.org. And also you can become a monthly partner at Jew3project.org, hitting the donate tab. I like to say every gift helps equip. We appreciate you for listening and we're so thankful for you and we're praying for you during this time of chaos uh, with the corona um, pandemic. We are praying for you and our thoughts and prayers. And um, until next time, grace and peace. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.